this conversation because it really sets the stage for the parable. So if you'll pick up with me in verses 25 and 28, we'll see this conversation that Jesus has. It says there in verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus has this conversation with this lawyer. Now don't think of lawyer as a trial attorney uh, in this kind of situation. A lawyer in this context was more like a lawyer slash theologian. It was someone who was trained in the Old Testament law and all of the, Old Test- or all of the oral traditions that were added to the Old Testament law and how they were supposed to flesh all these things out. Okay? And so this man, he asked Jesus this question, but notice that it says that he wanted to test Jesus. He wasn't asking Jesus these questions to gauge his biblical knowledge. He was hoping to trip Jesus up, to cause Jesus to give an answer that would have been regrettable or to stump Jesus in front of this esteemed gathering of people and it would have diminished Jesus' standing. So he was hoping to test and stump Jesus. What about this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? On the surface, it sounds like a great question, right? But again, he had something up his sleeve. And Jesus responds by saying, well, what does the Old Testament law say? Notice how Jesus points to the law, the Old Testament law. This is the source of our truth and of our conduct. So Jesus was in no way dismissing it. He was saying, this is, you're right, this is the standard. And so the man gives a tremendous answer. He points to two Old Testament commands. He, he points to Deuteronomy 6.5, which calls the nation of Israel to love the Lord their God with their entire being. And they're also to, as Leviticus 19.18 says, to love their neighbor as themselves. Now in Jesus' day, the question was debated amongst the Jews as to who exactly that neighbor would include. They knew that it included the Jews, but what about those outside of the Jewish people? Now in general, they did not regard the Gentiles as those they would regard as neighbors. So Jesus, hearing this answer, affirms what he says. And we know that Jesus later in his ministry, when he's, he, when he's asked a question about what is the greatest command, he actually points these two things out as the greatest two commandments that there are. So the lawyer believed the right thing. But Jesus knows that there's more to genuine belief than head knowledge. Jesus says, do this and you will live. Now, Jesus is not teaching salvation by works. All right? He's not teaching salvation by works. Salvation is by faith. But what Jesus is trying to communicate is that if we have genuine faith, it will necessarily lead to good works. Does that make sense? Your faith is only genuine if it affects your conduct. Otherwise, it is not true faith. As James 2.26 says, faith apart from works is dead. So going back to this conversation with Jesus is having with the lawyer, he knew the man believed the right thing, but that he wasn't practicing it in his heart. And I think the lawyer must have felt the pinch of what Jesus was saying. 
Because notice what he says in verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? What's wrong with the lawyer's question? Well, the lawyer's question reveals his own heart. That he was trying to limit down who his actual neighbor was. In other words, let me just find out who my neighbor is and then I will go love that particular person. He loves certain people, but not all people. And in response to the man's question, Jesus tells a parable. So we pick up in verse 30 with our famous parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So Jesus begins, despite starting off here telling us this story of a man who's presumably a Jewish man, he's going down from Jerusalem. And we know that Jerusalem was elevated really high, and this road to Jericho was about 18 miles long, and it was a very steep descent, about 3,000 feet in descent. It was a very kind of treacherous terrain. And it was also treacherous because it was filled with all kinds of hideout places and boulders and things like that that made it great um, places for robbers to hide. And there were stretches there that were very dangerous. Most people would not travel by themselves, but they would travel in groups. But this man, unfortunately, was by himself. And as it says there, he was stripped of his clothes. They robbed his stuff. They beat him. And then they left him half dead. Jesus then continues the story by sharing how three different people walked past the man. Let's read about the first man. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So the first man is a priest. We know from the scriptures that the priests, they were the descendants of Levi. They were the descendants of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. They were the official ministers of the nation of Israel for about 1,500 years. They stood and sacrificed uh, offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. And in Jesus' day, there were a lot of priests. In fact, they, would, they had so many priests that they would serve a one-week stint and then they would have a rotation. And a lot of them lived in Jerusalem and a lot of them lived in Jericho. So what was probably taking place is, is that this man finished up his one-week stint in Jerusalem and now is on his way back home to Jericho. So at first... When Jesus says, hey, this man, this priest was coming, your first reaction, if you're in the audience, was like, well, hey, this is good news. This was a servant of God. He knew the Old Testament. He would have known those commandments about loving your neighbor as yourself. He's going to stop, right, and help the man. Sadly, he doesn't. He offers no support. And in fact, he goes by on the other side of the road. And if that wasn't bad enough, it's pretty safe to assume that he wasn't just walking along. He would have been more than likely riding an animal, okay? So it wasn't like he was walking along and he saw this body on the ground and he's like, boy, I can't pick this guy up and drag him, whatever, to the next place. 
He had an animal. He could have put him on the animal and ridden off to some location and helped the man. But he chose not to. Jesus says, okay, then there's a second man. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So the second man is a Levite. He too was a descendant of the tribe of Levi. But unless, unlike, unlike the priest, he wasn't a descendant of Aaron. So the Levites served in sort of this assistant role where they were helpers in the temple area. They provided security. They led the worship. And they also would just kind of help with maintaining the grounds. And the Levites were held in high regard of the people. Like the priest, he was probably coming home from serving there in Jerusalem. Like the priest, he was probably also riding an animal and could have provided support. Like the priest, he decides not to help at all, but to pass by on the other side. So, so far we have two individuals, two men, the people that you might have thought were the most likely to help, and yet they provide no help at all to the man. Now, before moving on, I think it's just worth asking the question, why does Jesus single these men out? Was he trying to make a point here about the religious leaders? Were they guilty of such indifference? My best guess is that they were. You say, why is that? I don't think Jesus would have mentioned this if they were not guilty. If the priests and Levites did have a reputation for loving people in need, I don't think Jesus would have discussed it because everybody in the crowd would have dismissed his point. But Jesus, because he's the master communicator, chose examples that would have rung true with the crowd that, he was listed, that were listening to him. And so he points out these two individuals. It may not have been the case of all people individually, but as a group, they were guilty of this. And so this situation would have rung true in their ears. Probably making those present a little bit uncomfortable. But they were about to get really uncomfortable when Jesus comes to the third person to travel down the Jericho Road. A Samaritan man. A Samaritan man. He was an incredibly unlikely protagonist. Why is that? Well, if you know anything about the, the Samaritans, you know that they were not esteemed very highly by the Jews. Their origins were scandalous to the Jews. If you remember in the Old Testament, they were the, uh, the part of the northern tribe, or excuse me, they were the origins of the, the northern tribe. Remember, they were taken off by the Assyrians, right, in 722 B.C. And the Assyrians killed many of the Jews there. And the ones that were remaining, a lot of them got taken off into exile. And then the Assyrians sent in Gentiles into this northern region. And so the remaining Jews left there intermarried with these Gentiles and thus produced the Samaritan race. And there was a lot of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. On the Jews' side, they regarded them as outcasts, religious outcasts. They, they didn't have the same scriptures. They used just five books of the Old Testament. They built their own temple to sort of compete with the temple in Jerusalem. They mixed in pagan beliefs. So they were sort of like this cult uh, relationship. And so they didn't like them in that regard, in addition to their impure ancestry. 
And so there was constant tension from the Jews to the Samaritans. And in fact, in 128 B.C., just about 150 years earlier, when the Jews regained control of Palestine, you know what they did? They went into Samaria and they destroyed the temple. Now the Samaritans, on their part, they didn't like the Jews either. In about 9 A.D., there's an account where they actually snuck into the temple and scattered human bones inside the temple in Jerusalem to defile it. They didn't like the Jews passing through their, their area because people would have to come down from Galilee to Jerusalem. And a lot of times they would harass them and not let them pass. You read this in Luke 9 where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the final time and he sends a delegation ahead to go. And you know what? They won't let him pass because of this hostility. So the Jews and the Samaritans, they did not like each other. And as John 4 says, they didn't even have many dealings with one another. So for Jesus to bring out this Samaritan man as the sort of hero of the story would have been unbelievable unbelievable to the hearers at the time. So let's see what they let's see what this man does. Verse 33 it says, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So the Samaritan man sees this suffering guy, and instead of passing by, what does it say there? It says he has compassion. That's how the passage begins. He had compassion on the man. It's the same word that we saw last week when we talked about the prodigal son and how the father had compassion on him. It's a powerful word. It's a word that referred to the fact that you would have pity and from the very deepest depths of your being you had sorrow and sympathy. It literally referred to your bowels and how you were so moved that it affected the inner core of your being. So this Samaritan, he saw this man suffering and he had compassion on him. His compassion overrode any other obligations or any other sorts of barriers that would have popped up in his mind. And I can imagine that some would have popped up in his mind. There's there's possibly robbers still around. They were hanging around in caves and this guy probably just got mugged just a while ago. And if I hang around here real long, you know what? They're going to probably do the same thing to me. His compassion overrode that. He might have been worried about the fact that this guy is a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. I don't like these guys. But his compassion overrode the fact and he decided to do something about it. And it carried out in his actions. So unlike the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side, notice what it said there about the Samaritan. It says he went to him. He didn't go to the other side. He went to the man. And then he goes there and he binds up his wounds. He takes from his own provisions. They would carry around oil and wine. And he takes the oil and he would use that as an ointment. He would pour in the wine as sort of an antiseptic to help clean out the man's wounds. And then he puts him on his own animal and he goes to the nearest inn. Now these inns weren't the safest place to stay, but it was a little bit safer than the outdoors. And I think it's also powerful that he doesn't just sort of drop him off at the door of the inn and take off. 
which would have been better than probably some people would have done, the priest and the Levite. But he goes into the inn and he spends the night with this man caring for him and providing for him. And this is just a little bit of sanctified speculation, but I think there's something to it. The man might have also put himself at risk by taking him to this inn in a predominantly Jewish area. Right? He's a Samaritan. He's bringing in this half-dead Jewish man into a predominantly Jewish area. One writer that I was reading said, it would have been like perhaps a, a Native American finding a cowboy back in the Midwest and putting him on his horse and then taking him to the, you know, to the saloon, right? And then spending the night with him. Those fellow cowboys might have thought that the Native American was responsible for this and do something about it. But he shoves all that aside because his compassion was overwhelming for this man. The next day he gives the innkeeper two denarii, which is the equivalent of two days worth of wages. That allowed him to spend about two weeks recuperating. And that was kind of crucial. You know why that is? Because this man had nothing. This man had nothing. And if you stayed at an inn like this for a long time and you could not pay your debts, you know what would happen to you? You wouldn't just have a bad credit report. You would be sold into slavery to pay off your debt. And so the Samaritan is willing to pay two weeks' worth and he also tells the innkeeper on the way out, and if there's anything else, make sure that put it to my bill because I will pay it back. So we see this Samaritan, incredibly generous, incredibly sacrificial. He gives of his own clothes, a good night's sleep, takes of his time, gives him his own provisions like the oil and the wine. Two days pay. He puts himself at risk back on the Jericho Road. He puts himself at risk perhaps here in this Jewish inn in a Jewish area and who knows what might happen to him in sort of any kind of reprisal. But he does it all. What a contrast, huh? So after Jesus tells all this, he comes to the resolution of the parable. He comes back to the man and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So these three answers, which one's the obvious one? Letter C. But Jesus asked him this, I think because he wanted the man to say it publicly, that it was the Samaritan. And you know what's fascinating? Is that the man never even says it was the Samaritan. It's probably like he couldn't even get himself to say it. But he did say that it was the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus responds by saying, you go and do likewise. I don't know about you, but this parable is very powerful. It's incredible, the standard that Jesus lays out for us. 
How do we do likewise? How do we live out this expectation for kingdom followers as Jesus is inaugurating this kingdom and he's calling disciples to himself and he's saying, how do we live this out now as followers of King Jesus? Let me just mention two points briefly. And the first is, each person is our neighbor. I think human nature is such that like the lawyer who talks with Jesus, we like to limit who our neighbors actually are. When the people are like us, we're very open-hearted, very generous. But if they're much different from us, somehow things change. But Jesus is teaching here, there is no limit. There is no limit. It doesn't matter about the person's race, their age, their income, their gender, their education, their religion, their political party, or whatever it might be that somehow limits who our neighbor is. The person may be unborn, terminally ill, or have some kind of debilitating disease like Alzheimer's where they're not themselves anymore. But Jesus is teaching here that each person is our neighbor. Second, we're to love each person as ourselves. We're to love each person. Not just have a, a sort of intellectual acknowledgement that they're made in the image of God and I should love them as, our, as myself, but I will love them as myself. And so therefore, I will walk into work on Monday morning and love that obnoxious boss. That whiny co-worker. That gossipy classmate. We're to love our family members this way. Our spouses. Our children. Our siblings. Sometimes we'll go do all kinds of stuff for the world and visit hospitals and then come home and not treat our families the way we should. We're to love those who vehemently disagree with us about our religious beliefs, our politics, our social issues, and so on. We're even to love our enemies. Matthew, in Matthew 5, Jesus reminds us that, you know, it's easy to love those who love you back, right? We're called to be different than that. We have a high calling, friends, to be different than the world and to love those who even hate you back. To love our neighbors as ourselves. And that means that there should be real, tangible expressions, particularly when it comes to meeting needs, physical, financial, spiritual, emotional, Showing love like the Good Samaritan whose love was generous. It was sacrificial. He was willing to give up of time and resources, putting himself even in harm's way. And I, I thought about that this week, that loving our neighbors ourselves, at times it requires courage, doesn't it? 
to put ourselves in harm's way. We shouldn't just say, I'll love somebody as long as I never put myself in harm's way. Now, I'm not saying we don't use wisdom, okay? You know, I'm not saying, okay, go give all your money to someone you know is going to blow it on drugs. I'm not saying that. Or I'm not saying that, hey, if you can't call in support and help and get a police officer there and call 911, yeah, use wisdom. If you're a young person or a female, yeah, you don't need to be helping a single guy out by yourself in the woods if you can get help. But let's not lose sight of the main point. To love our neighbors as ourselves. How can we grow in this? Practical ways through our church. Ministries like the Voice Ministry or Acts 4 or Hope Line or the Southbury Food Bank or just various things that we see people in need within the life of our church. Are there practical ways that could make this more a part of our lives? Because Jesus is throwing out a high standard, isn't He? Maybe we can forsake a family gathering once in a while and go do something for somebody in need in our church or in the community. Maybe if we're in school, there's a, a new kid there or someone who's kind of picked on or lonely. Could we ever actually go over there and talk to them even though we might get teased by our friends? There are opportunities all around. If we would just look. But our danger is that I think sometimes we're like the priest and the Levite. You know, Jesus could have just simply held up the Good Samaritan and said, hey guys, this is how we're supposed to live. But do you think there's a reason that he pointed out the, good, uh, the, the priest and the Levite? Is that we all fall into this danger of being indifferent about the things that we know we should be doing. And the kingdom of God says, it doesn't matter if you're a priest. It doesn't matter if you have this high education. It doesn't matter if you're a church leader. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 40 years. It doesn't matter if you know your Bible inside and out. What matters is what you actually do. A few years ago, there was a, more than a few, there was a, an interesting experiment that took place with seminary students from Princeton Theological Seminary. You might have heard of this before. It was kind of famous. But these 40 students were asked to prepare a short speech and then to deliver it a little while later at another building on campus. Some were asked to speak about career opportunities that would come with their religious education degree, while the other group was asked to speak about the parable of the Good Samaritan. They were not given much time to prepare. And in the pathway between the two buildings, they staged a man to go sit there. It was a cold winter day. He was shabbily dressed. He was coughing. He was in obvious discomfort. And so on the way to the building, all of the seminary students had to pass by this man. And they wanted to know, would it make a difference that the topic they were talking about, these individuals who had the Good Samaritan in their mind, would they actually be any different than the other group of students who were just talking about career opportunities? Do you know what they found? That of the 40 students, only 16 offered any help at all. And by that, I mean most of them just said when they got to the building, they told someone about the man. Only a few even stopped personally to see if the man was okay. 
In fact, on several occasions, students actually walked over the man who, were, who was sitting there to go and talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan. That might sound extreme. But these were seminary students. No different than you and I. I wonder how we would do on a regular basis. Friends, let us just not know what this parable teaches. Let's be faithful to this calling that Christ gives us. Part of our conduct as followers of the kingdom of God is to regard each person as our neighbor and then to love each person as ourselves. As Jesus commands, let us go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, as we read this parable, it is a crushing parable. It crushes me. And I hope that it, it crushes all of us. Because it shows this standard that you've called us to. And Lord, I pray that each of us would be reminded that this is your standard for us and we are to live by it, not by our standards, Lord, but by your standards. Lord, we confess, if we are honest with ourselves, that we don't live out this standard. We don't love our neighbors ourselves. We don't regard other people as our true neighbor. So we confess that to you today. Lord, we pray by your power that you would change our hearts and minds. We pray by your love and your mercy that you would encourage us to know that where we fall short, we can find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here today who has never, as the lawyer asked at the very beginning of this whole conversation was, how do I inherit eternal life? Lord, I pray that you might help them to see that we're to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love our neighbors, ourselves, and that all of us fall woefully short of this. And this is what we would have to do to inherit eternal life, to be sinless. But all of us fall short. Therefore, we need grace. We need forgiveness. And we're so thankful that you, Jesus, died on the cross for people who don't love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul, mind and strength. They don't love their neighbor as themselves, Lord. We thank you for that. And I pray that, Lord, you would open the eyes of those who have not realized that, Lord, and to help them to see that there is grace and mercy to be found at the true with the true and ultimate Good Samaritan, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for bringing us and pruning us, Lord. We pray that you would build us up also, more and more into the image of your beautiful and glorious bride.
your Savior, our Savior, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.